Chapter Twenty of The Shadow of a Sin by Bertha M. Clay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The court at Lodestone was crowded to excess. Since the town was built, there had never been so great a sensation. The terrible murder at Oakton had been a subject of discussion over all England. The colonel was one of the most prominent men in the county. He had always been very proud and very exclusive, and the county had grown proud of the old aristocrat. It was a terrible blow to him when his nephew was charged with willful murder. All the elite of the county had crowded to the trial. Lodestone had never been so full. The hotels could not hold half the number who flocked to hear Claude Lennox tried. There were no more lodgings to be had for love or money. It was not only the county people who testified their interest. Claude Lennox was well known, and had been courted, popular, and eagerly fated in London drawing-rooms. Many of his old friends, members of his club, came to see him tried. It was an unusual case because of the rank, wealth, and position of the accused. Claude Lennox, the idol of London coteries, the Adonis of the clubs, the heir of grand, exclusive Colonel Lennox. Then the murder seemed so utterly motiveless. The young man swore most solemnly that he knew nothing of the deceased, that she was a stranger whom he had relieved. The handkerchief found upon her, he said, was his, and that it had been given from motives of charity, to bind her bruised hand. The address on the scrap of paper he admitted was in his own writing. He had given it to her, hoping that either his mother or his aunt would be able to find her work. More than that he refused to say. He refused to account for his time, to say where he had been that night, or to make any attempt to prove an alibi. He was asked who was his companion at Oakton Station, and he refused to answer. His lawyer was in despair. The able counsel, whom his distracted mother had sent to his assistance, declared themselves completely nonplussed. Tell us how you passed the night, they had said, so that we may know what line of defence to adopt. I cannot. He replied. I swear most solemnly that I know nothing of the murder. More than that I cannot say. It is probable you may pay for your obstinacy with your life said sergeant burton one of the shrewdest lawyers in england there are things more painful than death claude replied calmly and then the sergeant clapped his hands there is a woman in the case he said i am sure of it sergeant burton and mr landon were retained as counsel for claude but never were counsel more hopeless about their case than they they could call no witnesses in Claude's favour. They did not know whom to call. He will lose his life, said Mr. Landon with a groan. What infatuation! What folly! It strikes me he could clear himself if he would. But the 23rd of July had come round, and as yet Claude had made no effort to clear or defend himself. The morning of his trial had dawned at last. It was a warm, beautiful summer day. The sun shone bright and warm. Lodestone streets were filled, and Lodestone Assize Court was crowded. There was quite a solemn hush, 
when the Crown versus Lennox came on. Most of those present knew Claude Lennox, some intimately, others by sight. They looked curiously at him as he stood in the dock. The air of aristocratic ease and elegance that had always distinguished him was there still, but the handsome face had lost its debonair expression. There were deep lines upon it, lines of thought and care. How do you plead, prisoner at the bar? Guilty or not guilty? The silence was profound. Not guilty, my lord, replied the clear voice. And in some vague way, a thrill of conviction shot through each one that the words were true. Then the business of the trial began. All present noticed the depressed air of the prisoner's counsel and the confident look of the counsel for the prosecution. No rebutting evidence seemed to be the mysterious whisper circulating through the court. Then the counsel for the prosecution stated his case. It seemed clear and conclusive against the accused, yet the dauntless face and upright figure were hardly those of a murderer. The prisoner was absent from home the whole of the night on which the murder was committed. He was seen at Laybridge Station with a woman. He was observed to walk with her toward the meadow where the body was found. His handkerchief was found tightly clinched in her hands, and his London address in her pocket. Witnesses would swear to having seen him return alone to Oakton Park, looking terribly agitated. At the same time, the counsel for the Crown admitted that there had been no witnesses to the deed, that no possible motive could be ascribed for the murder, that against the moral character of Mr Lennox there was not one word to say, that no weapon had been found near the scene of the murder, that on the clothes worn by Mr Lennox at the time there was not the least stain of human blood. These were points, the counsel admitted, that were in favour of the accused. At this juncture, just as people were remarking how depressed the prisoner's counsel were looking, there was a slight commotion in the crowded court. A note written in pencil was handed to Sergeant Burton. As he read it, a sudden light came over his face, and he hastily quitted his seat, first handing the note to the junior counsel who read, I have evidence to give that will save Mr Lennox's life. Can you spare a few minutes to hear what I have to say? Hyacinth Vaughan. Sergeant Burton was absent for a little while, but he returned in time to hear the concluding part of the opposing counsel's speech. It told hard against the accused, but the learned sergeant only smiled as he listened. He seemed to have grown wonderfully composed. Then the witnesses for the prosecution were called, and gave their evidence clearly enough. Some in court who had felt sure of Claude's innocence began to waver now, who was with him at Laybridge? That was the point. There was no cross-examination of the witnesses. I have no questions to ask, said the counsel. My client admits the perfect truth of all the evidence. This is my case, gentlemen of the jury, concluded the counsel for the prosecution as he sat down. And it is a strong one, too, thought most of the people present. How can all these facts be explained away? Then Sergeant Burton rose. Gentlemen of the jury, he said, this is the most painful case I have ever conducted. A more grievous mistake than this accusation of murder against an innocent gentleman has never been made. 
I will prove to you not only that he is quite innocent of the crime, but that in his chivalrous generosity he would rather have forfeited his life than utter one word in his own defense which would shadow, even in the slightest, a woman's honor. I will prove to you that although the accused was at Laybridge with the lady, and not only spoke to but relieved the deceased, yet that he is entirely innocent of the crime laid to his charge. The silence that followed was profound. For the first time Claude's face grew anxious, and he looked hurriedly around. The first witness I shall call, said the learned counsel, is one who will tell you where Mr. Lennox spent his short time on the night of the murder, will tell you how he relieved the poor woman, will in short give such evidence as shall entirely free him of the most foul charge. Call Miss Hyacinth Vaughan. At the mention of the name, the prisoner started, and his face flushed crimson. Why did she come? Someone near heard him murmur. I would have died for her. Then, amid profound and breathless silence, there entered the witness-box a graceful girlish figure, on which all eyes were immediately bent. She raised her veil, and a thrill of admiration went through that thronged assembly, as the beautiful colourless face, so lovely, so pure, so full of earnest purpose, was turned to the judge. She did not seem to notice the hundreds of admiring, wondering eyes. It was as though she stood before the judge alone. Do not speak, Hyacinth, said the prisoner, vehemently, and in a low voice he added, I can bear it all. Do not speak. Silence, spoke the judge sternly. This is a court of justice. We must have no suppression of the truth. Your name is Hyacinth Vaughan? was the first question asked. My name is Hyacinth Vaughan, was the reply, and the voice that spoke was so sweet, so sad, so musical, that people bent forward to listen more eagerly. Sergeant Burton looked at the beautiful, pallid, high-bred face. You were in the company of the accused on the night of Wednesday, the 12th of June? Yes, she said. Will you state what happened? asked the sergeant blandly. Hyacinth looked at the judge, her lips opened and then closed, as though she would fain speak, but could not. It was an interval of intense excitement in court. Will you tell us why you were in his company, Miss Vaughan, and whither you went? said the sergeant. My lord, she said, for it was at the judge she looked always. Of the presence of the jury she seemed totally ignorant. I will tell you all about it. I went away with Mr. Lennox, to go to London, to be married there. Unknown to your friends? asked the judge. Unknown to anyone. Here Hyacinth paused, and the lips that had been speaking turned deathly white. Tell us about it in your own way, Miss Vaughan, said the judge. The sight of that tortured young face moved him to deepest sympathy. Do not be afraid. Then the fear seemed to die away from her. In all that vast assembly she saw no face but that of the judge looking steadily and intently at her own. My lord, she said, I was very dull at home. Everyone was kind to me, but 
There was no one there of my own age, and I was very dull. I made Mr. Lennox's acquaintance, and liked him very much. I thought I loved him, and when he asked me to run away from home and marry him, I was quite willing. But what need was there to run away? Asked the judge kindly. He knew the question pained her, for her lips quivered and her whole face changed. In our folly there were reasons that seemed to us to make it imperative. She replied. My friends had other views for me, and I was to start for the continent on Friday, the 14th of June. It seemed certain to us that unless we were married at once, we should never be married at all. I understand. Put in the judge kindly. Go on with your story. I did not think much about it, my lord. Continued Hyacinth. That is, about the right and the wrong of it. I thought only of the romance, and we agreed to go up to London by the train that passed Oakton, soon after midnight. I left my home, and met Mr. Lennox at the end of my grandparents' grounds. We went to the station together. I kept out of sight while he took tickets for both of us at the booking office. The clerk at Oakton station will prove that the accused purchased two tickets. Interrupted Sergeant Burton. The judge nodded, and the young girl continued. We got into the train and went as far as Laybridge. There the train stopped. Mr. Lennox told me that the mail train we were to meet had been delayed by an accident, and that we should have to wait some hours at the station. The morning was breaking then, and we were alarmed lest someone should come to the station who might recognize me. Mr. Lennox suggested that, as the morning was bright and pleasant, we should go through the fields, and I gladly consented. All this time the clear, sweet young voice sounded like music in the warmth and silence of the summer air. We reached the field called Lime Meadow, and stood there, leaning over the stile, when I thought I saw something under a hedge. We went to see. It was a woman who had been sleeping there. My lord, she looked very faint, very wild and weak. We spoke to her. She told us that her name was Anna Barrett, and that she was married, but that she was very unhappy. She was going with her husband to Liverpool. She told us her story, my lord, and it frightened me. She told us that she had once been a bright, happy girl at home, and that against her mother's advice she had eloped with the man who had sought her hand, and married him. Her words struck me like a sharp blow. She said it was better to break one's heart at home than to run away from it. Mr. Lennox was very sorry for her and when I saw her poor bruised hand lying on the grass, I bound it up. My lord, I asked Mr. Lennox for his handkerchief, and I wrapped it around her hand. There was such a murmur of excitement in the court that the speaker was obliged to pause. Go on, Miss Vaughan, said the judge. Still looking at him and him only, she continued. Mr. Lennox gave her some money. She told us that her husband beat her, that he had bruised her hand, and that she was quite sure he would come back to murder her. Then Mr. Lennox told her that if she feared that, to get up and come away. He gave her two sovereigns, and told her to go to London. He wrote down his address on a piece of folded paper, and told her if she would either come or write to that address, his mother would befriend her. She asked heaven to bless us, my lord, and turned away her head, as though she were tired. We walked on, and did not see her again. And again Hyacinth paused while those in court seemed to hang upon the words that came from her lips. Then, my lord, she continued, I began to think of what she had said, that it was better to break one's heart at home than to run away from it. All at once the folly and wickedness of what I was about to do appeared to me. I began to cry, 
and begged of mr lennox to take me home a very common termination to an elopement observed the judge mr lennox was very kind to me continued the earnest voice when he saw that i really wanted to go home he took me back to oakton and left me in the grounds where we had met so short a time before my lord i swear to you most solemnly that this is the whole truth will you explain to us inquired the prosecution why knowing all this you have allowed matters to proceed so far against the accused why did you not come forward early and reveal the truth my lord she said still looking at the quiet face of the judge i knew nothing of the case until twenty-four hours ago i started with my grandparents on the friday morning for the continent and have been living at Bergheim since i knew of the trial only the night before last and i came hither at once you came alone and immediately yes she replied i have lost everything by so coming i can never go back among my kindred again i shall never be forgiven there was a brief pause the foreman of the jury gave a written paper to the usher to be handed to the judge a paper which intimated that the jury did not think it necessary to go on with the case feeling convinced from the evidence of miss vaughan that mr lennox was perfectly innocent of the crime imputed to his charge the judge read the paper carefully and then looking at the witness said miss vaughan you committed a great error an error perhaps in some degree excusable from your youth but you have atoned for it more nobly than error was ever atoned for before at the risk of losing almost dear to you and of exposing yourself to the comments of the world you have come forward to save mr lennox i for one must express my admiration of your conduct your evidence has acquitted the prisoner the jury have intimated that there is no need to proceed with the case then arose cheers that could not be silenced in vain the judge held up his hand in warning and the usher cried silence heaven bless her cried the woman with weeping eyes she is a heroine the men said with flushed faces there was a general commotion and when it had subsided she had disappeared those who had watched her to the last said that when the judge in his stately manner praised her her face flushed and her lips quivered then it grew deathly pale again and she glided away End of chapter twenty